This is Southern Discomfort. CIA employee working as a contractor for the National Security Agency has come forward as the source behind one of the biggest leaks in U.S. history. Edward Snowden, a former CIA technical assistant now working with the NSA through the military firm Booz Allen Hamilton, revealed his identity in an interview with The Guardian of London. In June 2013, Edward Snowden handed over to journalists thousands of classified documents about a secret dragnet surveillance program with the capability of spying on everyone in America. Among the Snowden revelations was a program codenamed PRISM, which collects data directly from the country's largest telecommunications servers, including Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Apple. Here is former Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, lying about the very surveillance programs revealed by Snowden during questioning by Senator Ron Wyden. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. The intelligence community's blatant disregard for American civil liberties under the United States Constitution prompted Snowden to go public. For Snowden, leaking such highly classified secrets was likely the last act he would commit as a free man. From a hotel in Hong Kong, Snowden told documentary filmmaker Laura Poitras that he felt compelled to hand over state secrets because he believed the American people deserved to know the truth about the mass surveillance program implemented in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, in which everyone now was a potential suspect for scrutiny. This is something that's not our place to decide. The public needs to decide whether these programs and policies are right or wrong. And I'm willing to go on the record to defend the authenticity of them and say, I didn't change these. I didn't modify the story. This is the truth. This is what's happening. You should decide whether we need to be doing this. The Obama administration quickly condemned the leaks and charged Snowden under the 1917 Espionage Act. Some officials called Snowden a traitor and a Chinese spy, while others lauded him for his public service. Seven years later, Snowden remains in exile in Russia under a constant fear of extradition and legal retribution. There are signs, however, that Snowden might soon be able to return to the United States without the threat of retaliation. In September, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the NSA's surveillance program violated the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and was likely unconstitutional. Soon after, President Trump signaled that he might be willing to pardon Snowden. Well, I'm going to look at it. I mean, I'm not that aware of the Snowden situation, but I'm going to start looking at it. There are many, many people. It seems to be a split decision. There are many people think that uh, he should be somehow treated differently, and other people think he did very bad things. And I'm going to take a very good look at it, okay? I mean, I, I've, I've seen people that are very conservative and very liberal, and they agree on the same issue. They agree both ways. Uh, I'm going to take a look at that very strongly, Edward Snowden. Yeah, please. Snowden hails from the South. He was born in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Whether he knows it or not, Snowden is part of a long history of people who have stood up to state-sponsored surveillance in the South. By far, one of the most nefarious surveillance operations 
was the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which was designed explicitly to stymie Mississippi's burgeoning civil rights movement. The commission worked in the shadows, collecting information about homegrown dissidents and so-called outside agitators that could then be used to blackmail them or plant disinformation in the press. One person likened the commission to a Magnolia Gestapo. Joining me now to talk about the effort to pardon Edward Snowden and how the history of surveillance in the American South set the model for NSA spying is Joseph Atkins. Atkins teaches journalism at the University of Mississippi and writes about worker struggles at Labor South. What went through your head when you first found out about Edward Snowden, a private intelligence contractor who blew the whistle on the NSA surveillance on innocent American citizens? When Snowden left Hawaii and then ended up in Hong Kong, I was in Hong Kong at the same time he was, and all that story broke out. I wish I'd have known which hotel he was was in. I might have tried to see if I could go over there. But, um, you know, these revelations, uh, as with the revelations from, uh, from WikiLeaks uh, and Julian Assange and so forth, to me, I mean, they, they exposed uh, things that, uh, that we needed to know. We needed to know about uh, this huge surveillance program that Snowden's leaks, uh, documents r- revealed, just as we needed to know uh, many of the things that came out of the, the WikiLeaks exposés and so forth. You know, I, I know there have been legal questions or what have you, the breadth of these exposures and so forth. And there's a, there is a difference in the case between uh, leaks and Snowden. But um, regardless of whatever the legalities may be involved, I'm not a lawyer, but um, at, at, the, at the least it was an act of civil disobedience uh, in confronting what he considered to be uh, an extremely unconstitutional program by the National Security Administration, and he acted uh, in the way he thought that uh, that served the American people. Well, as a journalism professor, what do you tell your students about the vital role that whistleblowers can play in helping journalists get information out to the public and to ensure a free and open democracy? For many, many years, I taught media ethics, and these kinds of questions come up uh, come up there, and they're they're very important. Um, there was a, a, a uh, an intellectual writer on politics and policy, Samuel Huntington, uh, some years back said that um, power that remains strong as long as it remains dark. The biggest threat to power is being exposed to the light. The programs that, that, were, that were launched in the name of anti-terrorism after 9-11, obviously there was a strong reaction to that event and there needed to be but at the same time, it gave justification to such widespread uh, uh, surveillance of, of, of innocent Americans, as well as those who might be engaged in nefarious activities, that this was wrong. This was un, unrestrained power. Journalists, since time immemorial, have relied on sources to leak them documents that maybe there were rules in place that should have bidden that, but they were leaked anyway. And they've used those documents to enlighten us about what our government is really doing with our taxpayer dollars, uh, supposedly on our behalf, and yet uh, basically building onto its own power and uh, even threatening the very institution it claims to be supporting. I mean, look at the Pentagon Papers with uh, you know Daniel Ellsberg rele- uh, leaking those papers to the New York Times and Washington Post that told the true story of our involvement in Vietnam. Look at the exposés that came out during the Civil Rights Movement with the so-called COINTELPRO program, the counterintelligence program of the FBI, to investigate um, secretly 
uh, Martin Luther King in an effort to to embarrass him, you know, investigate his sex life and all those kinds of things. I mean, my gosh, this is a this is a, an abuse of power. In an early book I wrote some years back about um, various governments that have that have done this, including Mississippi, where I live. I teach at the University of Mississippi and the so-called Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which existed uh, from 1956 to 1977, that investigated anyone suspected of pro-civil rights activities and gathered information, particularly sexual information or anything that could be used to embarrass these people, to disgrace them, and to force them to shut up or leave the state. And so journalists don't have access often to these to this information without inside uh, sources who, who convey it to them. And the ultimate beneficiary of it are the people. I'm glad you mentioned Daniel Ellsberg, because he's often praised as being a whistleblower who did it right. Critics contrast Snowden's handling of classified information by saying, look, he left the United States, he went to Russia, he needs to come home and face the music like Ellsberg did. This whole time, though, Snowden has said that the only reason he hadn't returned was because he didn't think he would face a fair trial. What do you make of these distinctions between Ellsberg and Snowden? Snowden had tried before uh, he revealed these documents to uh, Glenn Greenwald of the, of the Guardian and then also um, to other uh, news sources as well. He had tried to, to raise his concerns to other NSA, uh, uh, to other officials. Uh, he, you know, he was working for a contractor for the NSA at that time, but to others. And he saw what happened. When uh, when so-called whistleblowers like himself, you know, uh, did that and did it within the confines of the organization itself, they began to be punished. Uh, there was action taken against them. Uh, ultimately, uh, lawsuits and legal uh, uh, allegations and what have you that um, that was torture, basically, in, in many ways. And uh, so he felt his only option was to was to go about in the route he did. I want to play a clip of Edward Snowden. In his own words, talking to journalist Glenn Greenwald about why he felt it was worth the risk to blow the whistle on the NSA. You'll hear Greenwald speaking first. Have you given thought to what it is that the U.S. government's response to your conduct is in terms of what they might say about you, how they might try to depict you, what they might try to do to you? Uh yeah, I I could be you know rendered by the CIA. I, I could have uh, people come after me or any of their their third party partners. Uh, you know they they work closely with a number of other nations, and that's that's a, a fear I'll live under for the rest of my life, however long that happens to be. You you can't come forward against the world's most powerful intelligence agencies and uh, be completely free from risk because they're such powerful adversaries that that no one can meaningfully oppose them. Um, if they want to get you, they'll get you in time. But at the same time, you have to make a determination about what it is that's important to you. And if living, uh, living unfreely but comfortably is something you're willing to accept, and I think many of us are, it's, it's the human nature, uh, you can get up every day, you can go to work, you can collect your, your large paycheck for relatively little work. Uh, against the public interest and, and go to sleep at night after watching uh, your shows. But if you realize that that's the world that you helped create and it's going to get worse with the next generation and the next generation who extend the capabilities of this sort of architecture of oppression, uh, 
you realize that you might be willing to accept any risk and it doesn't matter what the outcome is so long as the public gets to make their own decisions about how that's applied. In terms of the backlash that some other people who chose to speak out faced, look at Chelsea Manning, Bill Binney. These are folks who dedicated their lives to serving the American government. These are not exactly left-wing reactionaries or anything like that. So it must have been very shocking for Snowden to see the treatment of Chelsea Manning, knowing that he may face the same consequences if he were to blow the whistle on the NSA. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because um, Bill Benny, you know, former NSA uh, official himself, a top official, it was he who said, we are becoming, we are a police state. The surveillance program was a, a clear sort of evidence of that. I think Snowden looked around him and he saw, uh, he, he, he saw this, this happening, and particularly after 9-11. In fact, another NSA of, of official, Keith Alexander, Alexander, says, we need to not only sort of just go after the obviously identified terrorists and so forth, but the radicalizers. Well, what does he mean by that? I mean, radicalizers could be those who radicalize future terrorists, yes, but it could also mean political beliefs that that Alexander would not agree with. You know, who knows how far you take that kind of that term? As you said, the treatment of a Chelsea Manning, Chelsea Manning was held in solitary confinement for an entire year before uh, before she was actually able to go to trial. That's high level punishment when you haven't even been convicted yet. You know, there's growing signs of this sort of police state that Benny's talking about here all around us. I mean, we're living in the American gulag right now. We have 25% of the world's prisoners in this country alone. And it's now not that uncommon for people to be held in prisons, uh, detention centers or whatever, for, for months, for even years before they're even charged with anything. And uh, these, these, these camps that uh, undocumented workers are put in once the, and, then, uh, and then just sort of left there, uh, and even, even the more recent the police attacks on, uh, on African-Americans and so on, itself reflecting the, you know, the militarization of the police. All these things are of dire concern. And the Snowden story is part of a larger picture here that I think should be of concern to all of us. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals recently ruled that the NSA surveillance program violated the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Were you surprised by the ruling? And do you think it is the opening of a path for Snowden to be able to return to the U.S.? I guess I'm somewhat surprised by the ruling. Uh, I think it's encouraging. You know, uh, they, uh, they, uh, they, they've now said that that program uh, was, uh, was illegal. There's an indication of violation of the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution against illegal searches and seizures and so forth, and a right to essential privacy within our homes and, and surroundings. So, yes, that's encouraging. There have been other courts to rule in favor of the NSA along the way. You know, so this, now this ruling uh, went against the NSA's program. If this makes its way all the way up to the Supreme Court and we see the tilt of the Supreme Court today, who knows where that might go. Uh, but certainly at this level, at this point, that is encouraging, yes. Soon after the Ninth Circuit Court ruling, President Trump signaled that he was looking into pardoning Edward Snowden, even though hardline members of his cabinet, like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, remain committed to litigating Snowden under the Espionage Act. Meanwhile, popularity for Snowden has only grown since he leaked classified NSA documents seven years ago. What do you make of these shifting attitudes towards Snowden and the possibility of a pardon? 
Yeah, you know, uh, Snowden was um, was interviewed at the South by Southwest uh, event uh, sometime back, and and he was interviewed via Skype, I think it was, or what have you. Of course, he, he was in Russia at the time, but um, before an audience in Austin, Texas, and and uh, he got it like this this huge applause, you know, um, as he as he talked about his situation and why he did what he did. So yes, there is support out there uh, for him. I think in the public, people who didn't want to be snooped on uh, without any kind of justification or reason. As for President Trump, President Trump at one time said Snowden needed to be executed. He was a spy and it needed to be executed. And uh, now he says maybe he needs to be pardoned. Uh, Trump, you know, since he's been president, has had this own sort of ongoing warfare uh, warfare with the uh, the intelligence community, as we know. And uh, I wonder if he's saying this just to aggravate them just to sort of, uh, you know, uh, poke them in the eye a little bit, because this, in a sense, is a huge insult to them. And uh, they despise Edward Snowden. They would love to see him rot in prison. They feel like he undermined their programs. He undermined their, you know, just their reputation and so forth and so on. So whether Trump really means this, I don't know. You know, he, he just got out of his, you know, convalescence in uh, Walter Reed. And the first thing he does is to say that uh, he wants, he's, he's already issued this this call to de- declassify all the papers involved with so-called Russia Gate, allegations of Russian collusion between between him, his his uh, campaign and the, uh, and then just sometime back saying maybe he's considering uh, pardoning Edward Snowden. I think part of this is just uh, he has still ongoing anger against the intelligence community, which he feels like worked worked against him uh, during the campaign and even afterwards. He's still very critical. Of, of them. And um, these are sort of verbal assaults in a way. They're insults. But whether he really means to uh, to pardon Edward Snowden, I don't know that he really means it 100%. I think that's fascinating because Snowden, from the very beginning, has not asked for a pardon because he did not want to be used as a political pawn. Do you think pardoning Snowden will be enough to undo the chilling effect that has resulted from the persecution of whistleblowers in the U.S.? in the last 10 years. It's an interesting point about how Snowden himself would view a pardon. His lawyer, he has a Russian lawyer who has said pardon is not a pardon is not enough because that that continues the insinuation that he committed crimes and his lawyer argues he really did not commit a crime. He revealed documents that revealed that uh, an unco- unconstitutional actions by a major federal agency. If he accepts a pardon, you know, that allows him to come back to his home country, and I'm sure he's homesick and would love to do that. But in a, in a sense, he he's accepting being pardoned for wrongdoing. So would he do that? I don't know. That's That raises a delicate question for his side. There is a distinction, as I mentioned earlier, as I mentioned earlier between uh, the WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, and Edward Snowden. With WikiLeaks, a lot of that was valuable information, I think, the American public needed to be needed to know. But it was kind of in mass uh, uh, release of just huge compilations of documents without any kind of sort of scrutiny or journalistic scrutiny as to could someone be lives life be in danger here or what does this expose maybe that we that shouldn't be exposed because it could have a potential negative effect on, on the people or on the country or on the people's involved or what have you. Uh, Snowden did try to. Uh, he decided not to go that route. He did not leak his documents to WikiLeaks. He, he leaked them to Greenwald, um, 
uh, and Laura uh, uh, Poydras, so they could apply some sort of journalistic scrutiny to it that he felt was needed to make sure that um, that what was exposed needed to be exposed, and if there were sensitive materials that perhaps put lives in danger, that they would not be exposed. That's my understanding of some of the uh, some of his sort of approach to this, and um, and so there, you know there are distinctions all along the board, even those. Those are, are are somewhat different from Ellsberg, but it uh, you know it has been used as kind of a to make a difference between him and WikiLeaks, and also to to in uh, some justification to some of the criticism that's been raised against him. At the same time that we're talking about pardoning Snowden, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is also facing extradition to the U.S. for publishing classified documents. A few independent journalists like Kevin Gastola from Shadowproof have dedicated themselves to reporting on Assange's trial, but the majority of mainstream and progressive outlets have not. A lot of people have talked about how Assange is less sympathetic than individuals like Snowden or Manning, but that discussion merely obscures the fact that Assange is the canary in the coal mine for how journalists of every pedigree can be expected to be treated when they report on or publish sensitive information. How critical is this moment that we find ourselves in, both in terms of protecting people who come forward to divulge information vital to the public interest and those who publish those disclosures? It really is important, and it's, it's amazing that it's, not, that it's not being covered more. Assange is being accused of violating the Espionage Act. There's some 17 charges against him. And if you go back and look at that act, it does not make a distinction between journalists and just regular citizens. So a conviction of Assange uh, would open the door to possible convictions of journalists in general who use documents that have been classified or documents that have been leaked that were listed as secret or what have you, or top secret. So there, there are huge implications for the journalistic community from this case, and yet they seem to be ignoring it. There's, there's not that been that much, that much coverage of it. However one feels about Julian Assange, he, it's kind of, the trial itself is, it's, it's, it's a strange situation. He's, as I understand it, he's held in some sort of cage in the, uh, in the courtroom uh, as if he were to all of a sudden go on a harangue and, and just be tearing the place up or something. His health has been called into question. Uh, and, uh, and just the, sort of the, the gesticulations and what have you of the lawyers against him, the, the kind of sort of a, it's kind of a, a weird, sort of a weird story that you think journalists would be interested in just because if, if for no other reason for those, those reasons. And yet uh, it's almost like they're scared to touch it in a way. At, at the same time, the Washington Post, New York Times, other major media institutions have used information from WikiLeaks to uh, to make front page stories, to even help win Pulitzer prizes and so forth, and yet uh, now that he's on trial to see whether he can be extradited to the United States, where officials are chopping at the bits to to put him in, into a prison for the rest of his life, there's not been that much coverage. I think it points to an establishment media, mainstream media, that tends, for all the watchdog reputation that Times and Post and others may have even the Guardian in England, they tend, when it comes down to it, to still support the system as it is and um, ultimately the status quo. I mean, they'll be first in line to criticize maybe a certain president or certain 
policy or what have you, but the institutions themselves, they will, they're, they're going to be extremely reluctant to challenge. And some of the re- revelations that came out of both WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden's raised fundamental questions about government itself and, 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 the way, and the way it behaves and how these kinds of things are allowed to even exist and grow. I remember the treatment of Gary Webb of the, uh, you know, the San Jose Mercury News back in, I guess, the 1990s when he made the revelations about CIA collusion with um, drug dealers who were then supplying funds to the Nicaraguan Contras who were seeking to overthrow the Sandinistas. Instead of sort of uh, joining in that investigation to see, you know, what what's to this story, it was almost like an instinctive attack on Gary Webb himself for, for doing this. And um, later reports said that Webb's allegations, many were exaggerated and what have you, but he did make enough revelations that, uh, that revealed some curious connections within that whole world that, that needed to be exposed. And so maybe there's a reason why these major media organizations are not paying all that much attention to Assange right now, but it's, it's, it's kind of sad. Edward Snowden is originally from North Carolina, from a strong military family. He himself felt the need to serve his country after 9-11 and enlisted in the army. Still, he maintained skepticism about a lack of oversight on a strong central government. That's a lesson that many Southerners have had to learn the hard way. The South has a shameful history of state surveillance, but also resistance to it as well. And it has a clear history of defending political prisoners and people who face persecution. Why do you think there has never been a campaign waged in the South to pardon Snowden? Is it that there's just too many other issues to confront? Which, you know, it's kind of which South are you talking about? The sort of, um, the, uh, you know, the official South, the, uh, the, the leadership of the South, the political, economic, and uh, even media leadership of the South, uh, which is very, still very conservative, aligned in many ways. Most of the states are run by Republican legislatures and Republican governors. By and large, uh, I would vouch say they, they look at uh, Edward Snowden as a, as a spy and an enemy uh, to the nation, as a traitor, and so would have no sympathy for him, regardless of whether he's from the South or not. Now, you, you do have, and as you mentioned, you know, you have a, I, I feel, often underreported sort of Southern dissident uh, movement here. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot of labor activity across the South that's, that's not acknowledged. I write about this in my blog and elsewhere. There's, uh, you know, there's the whole the civil rights legacy that continues on. Uh, they, you're right. They've not really gotten into this issue very much at all, if at all. And uh, maybe it's too distant. Maybe it's too... Uh, maybe they are too too busy sort of fighting injustice within the South itself to uh, to look abroad to to someone like uh, to Snowden. But um, yeah, there's kind of a silence there too. I'll bet he has he he has sympathy uh, with them, but um, as far as any sort of protest, you know, or any kind of sort of really visible campaign, no, I'm not aware of any. Tell me about the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. Who created the commission and why? I'm from North Carolina myself. That's where I grew up um, and traveled a good bit before I ever settled here. And I've been a teacher uh, at the University of Mississippi, a journalism professor for a long time. I'm not a native, but um, I'm definitely a keen observer and longtime resident and so forth. This state has always been considered somewhat the most extreme of the southern states. You know, It has a, a long legacy of some horrible racism. 
but also uh, a, a proud legacy of protest against that. Going back to 1948, Bill Miner, a legendary journalist here uh, for many, many years, who died just a couple of years ago, a crusading pro-civil rights, uh, progressive journalist who was a good friend of mine. In 1948, he exposed the existence of an organization. It was the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, which was created by the governor to investigate labor activity and to expose, uh, to, to collect private information. At that time, about labor activity or any related civil rights, there wasn't that much at that point. But if, if there had been, certainly that, any kind of activity that the government felt challenged the integrity of the state. And uh, it finally got a national attention through A.J. Liebling and his uh, press columns uh, out of New York. Just six or seven years later, the state legislature creates the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission for the purpose of defending the sovereignty of the state of Mississippi, but ultimately it became a state-supported, taxpayer-supported spy agency to spy on civil rights activity, which was growing at that time in the state. And anyone suspected of, uh, of supporting civil rights for the equal rights of Black Americans, they collected data on them, embarrassing information, whether sexual preferences or uh, personal financial information, marital troubles. I've studied these agencies around the world, whether they were in communist um, Eastern Europe or in, uh, uh, or in fascist uh, Southern Italy, uh, Southern Europe. They love to collect sex information about sex because they can use that to embarrass people and force them into silence. And it's, it's kind of ironic. But anyway, the Sovereignty Commission lasted for about 20 years. And when it shut down in 1977, the legislature passed a law that its record should remain sealed for 30 years. Well, uh, a knowledgeable source got some of those documents and leaked them to reporter Jerry Mitchell, who then used that information to reopen some major civil rights cases. The fact that um, Edgar Ray Killen had organized the murder of the three civil rights workers in Neshoba County in 1964, during the long, hot summer of 1964, Freedom Summer, it was called. Uh, that um, that other that other clan leader Sam Bowers had orchestrated the murder of, of Vernon Dahmer, Dahmer who was an African American uh, who was campaigning for uh, for for voting rights for uh, for African Americans and what have you. He was killed on the front porch of his home, and so uh, Mitchell was able to use those leaked documents with the state legislature had ordered sealed for thirty years to reopen civil rights cases, to bring long overdue justice in, in, in those murder cases. Here again is examples of, of, of government putting its official seal on a, on a document that taxpayers basically funded. I'm saying that those are secret. We don't need to re- reveal those things. And then, thank goodness, there's a whistleblower or a leaker out there who gets that information into the hands of journalists so then the journalists can then finally give it to the people to whom it actually belongs anyway. I got to know the uh, the head of the Sovereignty Commission, Earl Johnston. I met him back in the 1980s uh, because he had been a close friend of uh, the Senator Jim Eastland, who was a longtime U.S. Senator uh, from Mississippi who uh, you know, who chaired the uh, Judici- Judiciary Committee in many ways was the most powerful of all the segregationists of that time because he uh, oversaw civil rights legislation, 
the appointment of federal judges and so forth. And so I got the last interview with Eastland and Johnston helped me get that interview. That um, was before Eastland died. But then years later, then later I wrote this scathing critique of Eastland uh, in, a, in a column. And Johnston stopped speaking to me for like 30 years or not 30 years, but for a long time and uh, 10 years, or what have you. And then later, uh, as he sort of uh, was attempting a mea culpa in his later years, actually befriended, befriended me again and uh, had me write a little blurb for one of his political books in which he, which he dedicated to, to civil rights leader Aaron Henry. Ironic, you know, I don't know that any of that excuses his role or certainly not the Sovereignty Commission, which was essentially a state-funded spy agency, much like the uh, NSA was on a national level. You wrote that Earl Johnston, who served as the director of the commission, justified the organization's work because it prevented extremist elements, I'm assuming he meant the KKK, from playing a larger role in the state. Can you talk about what he meant and how politicians and national security officials have used similar arguments about public safety in order to justify programs like the NSA's bulk collection of Americans' phone records? Yeah, the KKK was definitely was was definitely very real, but um, but what did the Sovereignty Commission then then sort of sanction or allow or, or help promote was interfering with uh, the jury case and the murder of Medgar Evers, who was the uh, the president of the Mississippi NAACP in the 1960s, and who was murdered by white supremacist Byron D. LeBeckwith. His first two trials ended up in a hung jury. And the Sovereignty Commission files revealed that the, that the state and the government had interfered with the jury. In fact, uh, Ross Barnett himself, as to who was on that, who was going to be on that jury, and ultimately it called for a, a, when when Mitchell's revelations came out, they had a, a retrial many years later, and Beckwith was finally convicted and sent to prison. Johnston says this, the Sovereignty Commission prevented you know some more extremists like the Klan killing more people, what have you. But then they also uh, worked to uh, their best to see murderers get off and not have to go to prison like Byron Dela Beckwith. On your Labor South blog, you try to use history, current, and international events to sort of link back to what's happening here in the South. Why is that important? And why don't more journalists do that? Well, well thank you for saying that and, and bringing attention to my blog. That way, uh, I have, from the very beginning, um, I looked not just, uh, you know, my focus is the South. The South is, the U.S. South is kind of my beat. But it's part of the world. It's part of the global South and then beyond. And uh, and often you find a kind of a pattern here that you see, you know, you see on a broader basis when you look beyond our borders. And uh, I think it's very interesting as to what goes on in other countries and uh, and compare that or contrast to what's, what's happened here. And, you know, um, Peter Applebaum of the New York Times talked about the southernization of the United States as a whole. And uh, it used to be the concern was the South was becoming more like the rest of the nation and losing its distinction or distinctiveness or what have you. But ultimately, it seemed like the rest of the nation is becoming more like the South, certainly with the growth of the Republican Party, or at least a Republican Party that seems to be in defiance of the party that Abraham Lincoln once represented. In my book, The Mission, some years back, I, I looked at the Sovereignty Commission and then I looked around the world at uh, across Eastern Europe. I had done some traveling which really inspired this book um, in Eastern Europe and in Russia. And I landed, I remember landed in what was still then uh, Czechoslovakia. It hadn't divided yet. 
communism had fallen, but it was still sort of a period of uh, interim period of a lot of confusion and what was going to be next. And I looked at the front page of the uh, the local English language newspaper when I stopped at the airport to Bratislava, and it was like 30 journalists uh, during the communist era now being tried as spies. I thought that was fascinating. Journalists as spies. And then that became kind of a, uh, of a sort of a thought that just sort of fed itself in my mind. And then as I come returned to Miss and I looked across Eastern Europe, this was a common occurrence. Journalists were spies in many cases uh, under the communist uh, rule. We come back here to Mississippi and you look in the sovereignty commission files were being released around the same time. These files ultimately were released to the public and are available today and how the sovereignty commission compromised journalists across the state to, to serve their, their ends. Even the uh, editor, Percy Green, of the, of the, of the major African, uh, newspaper for African-Americans, the Jackson Advocate, became a, a source for the, for the segregationist Mississippi Sovereignty Commission and helped spread the commission's uh, uh, view that Martin Luther King was a communist. And uh, so the compromising of journalists, making them even spies, took place here, just as it did in the old Czechoslovakia and Poland and elsewhere. And uh, that's a fascinating thing because, you know, people in, in, in authoritarian regimes don't trust journalists because they naturally view them as spies. They're saying, what are they doing out there collecting all this information? Are they doing it for my enemies? They don't have a real understanding of the way we perceive journalism and the protections under the First Amendment and so forth. That journalists should be anything but a spy because they're not serving a vested interest. They're serving the people, so hopefully. And so this concept of journals as spies being compromised, being becoming part of a corrupt system, that was fascinating to me. And to see how it stretched across the entire globe from Bratislava, Slovakia, to Jackson, Mississippi. Are there lessons that you've learned from looking at the history of surveillance in Mississippi, as well as current domestic spying programs that were revealed by Snowden? I have learned things. Uh, as I said in my in this chapter from my book, The Mission, I've always been fascinated by these places, these kind of uh, places in the world where they're, where they're dealing with their history and wrestling with it and how you have these sort of ghosts hanging, uh, hanging over societies from the past. And sometimes, you know, the guilty walk among us. You know, there was a journalist during the Ole Miss riots at the University of Mississippi riots in 1962 to allow James Meredith, in, as the first African-American students in the riots against that, a French journalist, Paul Guillard, was murdered, point blank, shot in the back of the head, right here on campus, a few feet from the building where I teach journalism. His murder was never found, never found, and may still walk among us, may still live here in Oxford, Mississippi, who knows. Uh, people feel that way, felt that way for a long time in former Nazi Germany, still do in Eastern Germany, or former Eastern Germany, where... Uh, you know, I wrote about people I got to know there who asked that same question or the people who put me in prison now walking among us. You're not always going to get that story in your mainstream media. You're just you're going to have to go beyond that because the media is too often, at least the mainstream corporate media is too often complicit with the powers that be that have allowed these things to happen. And maybe they change decades later, you know, uh, but... 
you often are not going to get the whole truth because as, as, as powerful and as great as a paper like the New York Times is or as CBS News might be on the evening or what have you, they don't always tell the whole story. And that's a shock. Uh, that's a, that was a shock to me. It's, uh, it's something I've learned you know, along a hard road of studying this business that I'm in. Joseph Atkins teaches journalism at the University of Mississippi and writes about workers' struggles at Labor South. Music for Southern Discomfort was recorded by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jonathan Michaels.